You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, it's good to be with you again. You know, as we continue our series in Isaiah, let's just take a moment to quiet our hearts, to pray. Um, We need God to instruct us if we're going to profit from this time. So let's ask for his help now. So, Father, as we come to you, make us attentive to your word. Lord, thank you that your word doesn't just inform us, it transforms us. It is your power at work in those who believe, so, Lord, make us willing. Give us hearts to receive this. Turn our eyes to you, Jesus. Um, And, Lord, even where change might be uncomfortable in our lives, I pray we would see the great promise, the great joy you hold out to us in responding to you. Help us to come to you now, Jesus. We want to hear from you. We want to be taught by you. I want to be taught by you. Teach us now in your name. Amen. You have uh, probably heard someone say, if an offer sounds too good to be true, it probably is. When someone makes a ridiculously good offer, I'm suspicious. Are you suspicious? We're naturally suspicious and for good reason, because offers that seem too good to be true usually are. Uh, My wife, Cashelle, and I, we are good at saying no. We're good at it. And this probably sounds weird, but we kind of like high-pressure sales environments. It's sort of a team-building exercise for our marriage. We like walking into them, and we're really good at saying no. You know what we're best at saying no to? timeshare presentations. (laughs) We're so good at it. We've done it so many times, and we play the game, and then right when they think they're about to close, we pull the rug out from under, nah, can't do it, and we have gotten so much free stuff (laughs) because we are good at it. We know the offer is too good to be true, but guys, last year we finally cracked They got us. We had gone to this one company and said no to an offer five different times. I mean, we were just milking them for all they're worth. And then we go to their final timeshare presentation, and they're desperate. And they send in the guy above the guy above the guy, and he comes in. And he's like, look, I know you're going to say no, but what are you willing to pay? And I named the price. And he said, all right. And I look at Cashel, and she looks at me, and we're like, we did it. We got him. And so we signed on that dotted line, and we had access to the greatest vacation exchange program in the world, and the deal was locked in forever. And, and when I left that office, I felt like a genius. Genius. I bet against the house, and I won. I won. And a few weeks later, the entire company got bought out by a bigger company. And the new company changed our contract, which is a miracle, because you're not supposed to be able to, but they could, somehow they did. And we lost the exchange program for another exchange program that's, that's not great. It's not great. And, and you guys, we've got um, a great timeshare now that you're welcome to use whenever you'd like. It's, uh, it's fantastic. I'd love, I'd love to tell you about it. It's, uh, 
If a deal sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There are good reasons to believe that. And so we're looking at this offer God makes to us this morning, and it's so astoundingly, amazingly ridiculous. If we believed this, you would come to God all the time, all the time. So why don't we? Why don't we come to God all the time? Because we are naturally cynical, suspicious creatures. We've been let down a lot. We are distrusting. And and if we're honest, God's deal just sort of seems too good to be true. And it keeps us from coming to him. And so, so I want to talk about that barrier because it's in there. How do you overcome it? Let's talk about it. So we're in this series in the book of Isaiah. And we're looking at really the key figure in the book of Isaiah. It's this mysterious figure called the servant. He appears in the latter half of the book and it's clear that the servant is God's man to accomplish God's mission. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, what does he say? I'm the guy. I am the servant, which means if we want to understand Jesus, if we want to understand the mission of Jesus, if we want to understand our mission as his followers, we have to look at Isaiah and this character. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the servant's salvation. Isaiah 53 is what the servant saves us from. Through dying and rising, he saves us from sin and death. Isaiah 54 is what the servant saves us from. Four, he saves us from barrenness for fruitfulness. He saves us from shame for honor. He saves us from fear for confidence. That's the abundant life that Jesus comes to give us. He has done everything. He has set the table. All we have to do, all we have to do is respond to the offer. That's it. That's Isaiah 55. Here is the invitation the servant gives. God says, verse one, come, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Can you almost hear Jesus crying out in these verses? It sounds just like him, right? What does he say? John 7. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. John 6, what does he say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is making this extraordinary appeal to us here. What is he offering? Salvation. What is salvation? It's more than you think. It's more than getting your life cleaned up more than getting your sins forgiven, more than going to heaven when you die. What is salvation? It's satisfaction. It's a feast. Jesus is saying, I have what you need. When you're thirsty, I mean really, really thirsty, what do you want more than anything? It's not a white claw. It's not a Mountain Dew. You want water. That's what you need. Water. You are desperate. For water, Jesus is saying, I have that thing in your life that you know you need, but you have never been able to find. That's what he's saying. But he's saying more than that. He's saying, I'm not just going to meet the need. I'm going to meet your desires. I have pleasures for you, wine, milk, luxury items in the ancient world. This is sounding good, isn't it? What you need, what you desire. So what's the catch? What's the cost? 
No cost. The thing we crave, the thing we desire, the good life, it's ours and it's free. Wow. Actually, it's, it's not free. Exactly. Free to us. It comes at an infinite price for the servant. He gives his life. He pays our entrance fee. He pays the debt of sin. And so we now have entrance to this feast. And all we have to bring is what? Our need and receive it. Matir in his commentary says that God is asking us to bring our poverty to a transaction already completed. Someone has paid our way. Is that hard to believe? It is kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Because it is counterintuitive to the way everything else works in the world. Everything. There's no free lunch, right? I scratch your back, you scratch mine, you only get what you give. That is how the world works and it's not how God works. Which means we don't ever expect this, do we? Do we ever expect this in life? No, we don't. I'll give you the answer. I was at a Starbucks drive-thru recently and, and the woman in front of me was taking her sweet time. And I can see why. She's just chatting, just chatting with the barista. And, and I am getting so irritated inside. I'm like, I have kids that are hungry. I'm an important person. I'm late. I have not been caffeinated. Like, who do you think you are? So she drives away, and I pull up. And before I can pull out my card, the barista goes, here, here's your food. And I'm like, huh? She's like, yeah, that woman, she just paid for your food and your coffee. And I thought, wow, that inconsiderate, selfish woman was actually pretty nice. <laughs> and, then it, and then it hit me, right? Because we never expect this. It hit me. I'm like, Jeff, you inconsiderate, selfish man. Why was she taking a long time to pay for you? That's why it took her longer. And so I was so I was so convicted, but my kids were delighted. They were just amazed, and they were like, Dad, we should do that for the car behind us, and I said, no. Because I'm a jerk. But I am not a naturally gracious person. No human is a naturally gracious person, except for Jesus except for Jesus. Jesus, there has never been a time where Jesus had to white-knuckle his way into compassion. In fact, mercy is the very movement of his heart. You'll never find that anywhere else. It's, we can hardly believe it. It's not that Jesus has to just offer us a gift. He has to overcome our natural suspicion and convince us this is really true. I love Luke 14 because Jesus tells this parable and he sort of riffs on Isaiah 55. And in the parable, the master gives this extravagant feast and then the master sends out invitations and he invites people you would never think to invite to the feast. He invites the poor, the crippled, the, 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 the blind, the lame, people who would never get invited to a feast. You know why? Because they have nothing to give the master. He invites the weakest of the weak and the lowest of the low, people who can only lower the status of the master in the community. And he says, invite them all in. And, and the servant goes out to get them 
And I love verse 23. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Why would people have to be compelled? Because it just seems too good to be true, right? When the lowest of the low hear that a wealthy, powerful master is giving a banquet in their honor for free, what are they going to think? Nope. That's a timeshare presentation, right? That's, that's too good to be true. And so what does the servant have to do? Compel them. He has to take them by the hand and say, no, no, really. No, really. This is for you. That's, that's what Jesus is getting us to in this passage. He's saying, no, really. No, really. I, I'm going to overcome your natural suspicion. It's, it's this good. It's astounding, isn't it? Because like, we live in such a self-exalting culture, it's hard for us to understand this. It is no boost to God's status to welcome us in. It's not like he's getting so much out of this relative to us, right? No, it, he delights to exalt lowly people. He exalts to meet low people in their lowness. Why? Because that's actually the kind of God he is. Isaiah 57. We're not gonna be able to preach on Isaiah 57, so I had to get it in here somehow. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell where? In the high and holy place. Where else does he dwell? And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't this astounding? The God who is unapproachably, infinitely great, who you are incomparably inferior to, what does he love to do? He loves to get low. He loves to condescend. He loves to meet people in their lowness and be right with them because that's the kind of God he is and offer them everything for free. See, we need a Bible to convince us of that because our natural thoughts would never go there, that this is actually the nature of who God is. And he says, I'm right here, come. This is a passage about coming to God for the first time. In a sense, it's, it's talking to you out there who don't believe yet. And that's some of you in this room, you've, you've heard about Jesus, you're still thinking this is too good to be true, I'm skeptical. And I'm glad you're here. But this is also written for all of us because the Christian life isn't just about coming to God one time, it's about coming to God all the time. Again and again and again. Martin Luther said that the entire Christian life is a rehearsal of the gospel. It's a rehearsal of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, how do you come to Jesus? You go, oh man, I have nothing. Jesus has everything. Sin is a lie. I'm gonna turn from that and trust totally in Jesus. Guess what? You don't just do that once. That's every day. See your need, come back to Jesus. See your need, come back to Jesus over and over and over again. And so here's the critical question for this morning. Why don't you come to God more often? Why don't you draw near if he's a rewarder of those who seek him? Why is Jesus often the last resort in my life rather than the first resort? Well, so in this passage, God gives us reasons to come, but implied are the reasons we don't come. Why don't we come? Three reasons I want to talk about quickly. First, because we're more intrigued by other offers. Jesus isn't the only one saying, come here. 
There's a world clamoring for us. Second reason is we think there's a catch and we don't like it. We know that if we come to God, he's going to mess with us. He, he loves us where we are, but he never leaves us where we are. We don't like that. That's second reason. Third reason is we just don't think he's going to deliver on the offer. And if I really come to him, will he really change me? Will he really make me a new person? Will he really give me what he says? So let's look at these, and then let's look at how God overcomes our fears. First barrier. We hear Jesus' offer. Is Jesus the only one making an offer? No. I love Proverbs 9 because it contrasts two ladies, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And what it says is that Lady Wisdom is always calling to us. Here's the way of wisdom. Do you know who's also always calling to us? Lady Folly. And Proverbs 9 says that Lady Folly is loud. There's only one way of wisdom, the way of Jesus. How many ways of folly are there? Innumerable. And they are constantly offering us the good life and they can drown out the offer God is making to us. And so God asks here in the passage, he asks us a question. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, why do you pursue things that make you miserable? Why do you spend your life on things that give you nothing in return? That's a good question, isn't it? So why do we go after those things? I'll tell you why. Because we think they can satisfy us. In fact, the world is incessantly offering you a competing vision of the good life that contradicts the vision Jesus has for you. Incessantly. It's everywhere, all the time. It is nonstop messaging. It is in kids' shows all the time. I'm sitting with Omari, and we're watching a show. And the characters, it's this cute little show, and the characters are singing, you can be anything, you can do anything. If you can see it, then you can be it. Do what you love, then you love what you do. And I'm singing along, and I'm like, wait a minute. Everything you just said is a lie. All of it. Sure, it sounds good when you're young, like oh, everything is open in front of me. My dream can be anything. Guess what? Life narrows real quick, okay? Your options go away. You cannot be anything. You can't. You cannot do anything. Sorry. All right? I, it's not I can see it, I can be it. That is crazy, right? I love watching the Warriors. I love it. Oh, I can see it. I can be it. I can make the team, right? 23, 24 season. Here's the deal. Even if I spend every waking moment for the next year practicing shooting, let's say I became the greatest shooter in the world. Sorry, Steph. It's me. Let's say I actually did that by some miracle. Would the Warriors draft me? No. Because they don't want a guy who's six, flat, just south of 40, with bad lateral movement and a 16-inch vertical, okay? No one wants that guy. Even if I'm the greatest shooter, you cannot be anything. Listen, not even God can be anything or do anything. He can only be God. He can only do what's consistent with his character. So, so this is crazy, and yet we are constantly told there are infinite paths to joy, and whatever you could self-actualize, that's the one. And the Bible's the exact opposite. There's only one way of wisdom. Only one. And I think the problem for a lot of us is that we have sort of gospel and then gospel 1A in our lives, right? 
We have the good news, and then we have the dream, and we hope that we get everything we wanted in life, and then we get Jesus too. Right? And whether it's success or satisfaction outside of what God says or some kind of personal happiness that's not according to the will of God, and we just kind of hope that they meet somewhere, but they don't. And so what is that thing that you give yourself to that's not Jesus? When you're stressed, what do you run to for security and significance and satisfaction? You gotta identify that thing, and here's how you overcome that barrier. You ask the question that God asks you, right? Why do you spend your money on things that make you miserable? I ask, what am I getting out of what I run to? And what is it costing me? See, we are suspicious of Jesus. Why should I believe Jesus offers me the good life? Why aren't you suspicious of every other offer? Why aren't you suspicious of that addiction that's never given you anything? Why aren't you suspicious about worry and all the fret? Has it helped you at all in your life? Why are you su suspicious, not suspicious about nursing your grievances and anger? How has that helped you? Why are you not suspicious of that substance you turn to that is just taking your life from you and robbing you? See, we have to identify this thing. Jesus says, why do you labor for the food that perishes? That's the way he asks it, Right? The reality is we're all laboring for, for something that's gonna destroy us. Only Jesus' offer gives us life. And here's the interesting thing. You know what? Even those who don't believe in Jesus know this is true. They know it's true. David Foster Wallace, great novelist, he gave a commencement at Kenyon University a long time ago. He's not a Christian and he understands exactly what Isaiah is saying. Exactly. Here's what he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. He's not a Christian, Okay. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. That's some good biblical preaching from an agnostic right there. But he's right, and you know it that the more weight you put in anything, the less satisfying it becomes. And so whatever it is, whatever that thing is outside of Jesus, you're looking for security, the more you look to it, the less secure you'll feel. The more you look to that thing for satisfaction, the less satisfaction you'll get. The more you look to it for significance, the more puny you'll seem. What is that thing? Examine it and then re-examine the offer that God gives you. Dre Cancel out those melodies. Listen to God's. Do you see what God's offering? He's saying, listen diligently to me and what do you get? Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Is God holding out on you? No. But how do we experience his goodness? Listen to what I say. Listen to my word. Do you see how good this is? He's committed to satisfying us forever. And here's the great thing about God's commitment to us. Do you know who it isn't dependent on? Us. He's just going to do it if we're in him because he's committed to honoring his covenant. That's what he goes on to say. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. 
This is an amazing thing. God says he will make a covenant with us, but then he says it's a covenant with David. What's God talking about? In the Old Testament, God promises to raise up a king from David's line, and that covenant with that king is irrevocable. Doesn't depend on us, doesn't depend on our successes, doesn't depend on our failures. God just says, I'm going to exalt someone from your line. He will be a witness, he will be a leader, he will be a commander of the peoples. Essentially what God is saying here is, I'm gonna choose someone from David's line to glorify and beautify. He will reign the world forever. And everyone who lives in that king's kingdom will get a share in the blessings of his reign. Why? Just because they're associated with him. And we know who that king is, right? It's Jesus. And Jesus comes and see, God's promise to us isn't first and foremost with us. Who is it with? Jesus. He says, I will exalt you. I will glorify you. I will make you the king of the world. And guess what? Because we're in Jesus, we share in it. So ultimately, the satisfaction we're gonna get, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on a covenant-making God who cannot lie. And if it's coming for Jesus, we get a share in all the good things coming as well. That's good news, isn't it? <laughs> it's ours, it's free, it's coming. It ultimately doesn't depend on us, which means you should get really happy when you read the Bible. If you listen, if you listen, you should feel satisfaction. You, some of us need a hearing adjustment when we listen to the Bible. We need a hearing adjustment. Here's why. If you walk away from the Bible defeated, I'm a failure, I'm inadequate, I'm this, I'm that, you weren't listening right. In fact, Nehemiah 8 says that when we hear the Bible, do you know what we should think? The joy of the Lord is my strength. We should have joy from the Lord that gives us power. Why? Because the point of the Bible isn't to highlight in our, our inadequacies first and foremost. It's to highlight the adequacy of Jesus. It's not about us focusing on our failures. It's focusing us on Jesus' success. And so until you've walked away from the Bible encouraged with Jesus, keep reading because <laughs> you're not hearing it right. So drown out the other offers. Listen more carefully. That's the first reason. There's competing offers. That's how we overcome those barriers. Here's the second reason we don't come to God. We think there's a catch. Every offer has a catch, right? There's always a catch. It's not free, right? And here's the thing. Here's what we know the Bible teaches about coming to God. God loves us where we are always, right? Always. Does God ever leave us where we are? Never. <laughs> he loves us too much to let us stay there. So coming to God, the biblical word for that is faith. Faith is coming to God. You cannot come to God and trust him without turning from what? Sin, you stop trusting sin. Turning from sin is repentance, right? So, so faith by its very nature means, ooh, this stuff is not gonna satisfy me. I need this, right? That's repentance, that's faith. They're two sides of the same coin. Here's the thing. God loves us where we are. He doesn't leave us where we are. We know if we come to him, he's gonna mess with us because he always does because he loves us and God is radically different than us. God doesn't just want to brush off the dust. He wants to radically change us and we are very set in our ways and that's a very uncomfortable prospect. We think there's a catch here. God's gonna do something to screw me up. Is God really as good as he says? That's the second implicit barrier here. Look what the text says. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the unrighteous uh, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Do, do you see the connection here between these verses? God says, forsake your thoughts and ways, and take on whose thoughts and ways? God's thoughts and ways. <laughs> Here's the question. How different are my thoughts and ways from God's thoughts and ways? Radically different. Incalculably different. There is a chasm between the way God thinks and does things and the way I do. So repentance, turning to God, it's, it's not just like, Jesus, thanks for those little tweaks you made on my view of life, right? No, Jesus shatters our worldview and remakes it completely. I like the way Ray Ortland says it. He said, coming to Jesus means we have to retake the class Basic Human Existence 101. You have to go down to the foundation and unlearn and relearn everything. That's why Jesus says to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like what? A kid, right? Not some hardened, cynical, know-it-all adult who already has it figured out. And Jesus, thanks, Jesus, for saying that too. I've always known that to be true, right? No, it's, it's God. I don't know anything about how the kingdom works. I don't know the slightest thing about how to live. Teach me. That's a radical change. And here's the thing about it. It's gonna feel so uncomfortable sometimes. In fact, that's the way you know you're taking on God's thoughts and God's ways. You think, oh, these are not my thoughts <laughs> and my ways. It's uncomfortable, Right? It's like fixing a golf swing. Only you golfers will get this, but it's a good analogy. So hang with me, all right? Like when you've got a flaw in your swing, you don't know, have no idea why you're hitting it bad. And then when someone corrects you, you're like, I'm gonna break my leg if I stay in this stance. This feels so uncomfortable. I feel so weak. And then you do it the right way and you go, oh, the right way felt really weird. But it's clear that was the right way. That's the way of Jesus. It's gonna feel weird and weak and awkward. And yet that's the way of life. And so whatever the problems are in your life or your marriage, Jesus doesn't want to tweak things. He wants to destroy the way you're thinking about it and remake it from the ground up. Does that sound uncomfortable? It is because it's going to seem unnatural and it's going to seem like if I actually do what Jesus says, he's going to ruin my life, right? Forgive people, be meek, be gentle, don't nurse grievances. I'm just going to be this weak human being if I follow your ways, Jesus. How do you overcome that barrier? Here it is. You need to recognize that God, do you know how he's greater than you? His ways are far kinder, far more merciful, far more gracious than you could possibly imagine. Here's what's amazing about this passage. When we hear, you know, God's ways are not our ways, we think about like God's mysterious will or oh, we can't figure God out. Or, now that's true, but that's not what this passage is saying. Do you know what the passage is saying about how God is higher and greater than us? He is higher and greater than us because his natural disposition is mercy and kindness. And what human being is like that? No one. There is a chasm between the kindness and goodness of the Lord and the way we view kindness and goodness. 
That phrase that he uses here is the heavens are higher than the earth, so I am higher than you. The only other place that's used in the Bible is Psalm 103, 11, where the psalmist says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear. What is unimaginably transcendently great to us that we can't even begin to grasp about God? Do you know what it is? It's his mercy. Judgment and wrath feel very natural to us. If we're honest, we get that part about God. I don't like God's judgment and wrath. You're judgmental all the time. Like, what do you, I just walk around all day with an inner lawyer. Like, look at that person, the mistake he made. Ha ha, look at that person. Look at that person's dress. Ooh, that person failed, but it made me feel good, right? Like, we get judgment. We get being judgmental and critical. What we don't get is showing mercy. We have to learn that God doesn't. It's actually who he is. That's how he's transcendently greater than us in a way we can't possibly imagine. You know why that's good news? That kind of kindness is the thing that leads us to change. Because if he's that unimaginably good, if I actually do what he says, do you know what I'm gonna experience? Mercy, kindness, his blessing in ways I can't even imagine. He's that unimaginably good. That's what we have to realize. Last one, and I'll land the plane quickly. There's just too much good stuff in Isaiah, okay? Here's the final reason we don't change. We don't want to come to God. Some of us really don't want to change. Right? We don't. We know what God says. We just don't believe it's good yet. Some of us desperately want to change. And we know we're making a mess out of our lives. We just don't know if God will deliver on his promise. We just think, I have been stuck the same way forever. Am I ever going to overcome my anger or my anxiety or my lust or my whatever? I'm just stuck. Can God really deliver and make me new? Here's what God says to you. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What's God talking about here? He's talking about his word going out, the word to come. The word to come to me, and God, is he feeling any anxiety about this thing working out? No. He says, my word is going to go out. People will come. It will be like the rain hitting the ground. There was death. Boom, there's life. People will come to life. People will come to me. And not only will people be renewed, but all of creation will be renewed and the curse of sin will be undone and the blessing will flow for as the curse is found and my word will not just make people new, it will make everything new. And because it went out, I am totally confident it will not return void. It will accomplish everything. Do you see how God's word works? Here's one of our problems with the way we think about God's word. We think that God's word is only truth that informs our minds. Right? So it's just a totally intellectual thing that I read and it's true and I get more information. 
right? The Bible's information. In the Bible, God's word is information, but do you know what else God's word is? Transformation. The word itself carries power to undo everything wrong and restore everything and make it right. What does God say here? When my word goes out, it's like what? Rain. Don't you love that image? Because even thousands of years later, right, with all of our technological innovation, what do we desperately need? Rain. Can't just invent a fix for that. We need rain. And we are, it only comes from one place. We are desperate for it. And if we don't get it, we die. And yet when it comes, do you know what the beautiful thing about rain is? It's automatic. It will produce life. It does bring life. That's the nature of God's word. He is sovereign over it, but when it falls, do you know what happens? What God wants. And God gives us a gazillion examples of this in scripture. How does God create in Genesis 1? Speaking the word. How does Jesus heal? The word. How does he cast out demons? The word. How does he still the storms? The word. Psalm 29, it is the voice of the Lord that shakes the cedars and shatters them. God's word, Paul says, does its work in those who believe. So if I come to God and sit in his word, I don't have to know the way it's working. I can trust that as I come to him, I don't know how the rain's gonna come, I don't know when the rain's gonna come, but when it does, guess what's gonna happen? Life, change. And there are 2,000 years of stories of people getting completely wrecked and remade by the word of God. Cutting them to the quick. One, one example I, I saw this week and then I'm, I'm done. I, uh, I was in a text conversation with my friend and we were texting about psychopaths. And I'm fine, by the way, don't worry, I'm okay. I'm okay, I don't think I'm a psychopath. But we're like, yeah, man, psychopaths, what's the deal? And we're talking about it, we're texting about them. And then you ever do this on the internet, you get on like a weird search, like, and you're just like, I'm gonna go learn about psychopaths, right? And I don't know if I'd encourage that, but anyway, I went and, and I learned, and it's like, okay, has anybody been cured of, of psychopathy or sociopathy? And you know, the, the consensus answer is no. No one is cured of that thing, right? And so that got me thinking like, huh, are there any testimonies from psychopaths? Like, I wanna know, is there, a, is there anybody who like got saved who's a psychopath? And then I remembered this story of a guy I heard, he's now a pretty prominent defender of the faith, but he gives his story. He was, for all intents and purposes, a psychopath. He tried to kill his dad with a hammer. Feels no guilt, no remorse, goes to prison, meets a guy who asks him a series of questions he can't answer. And he had mocked and derided Christians, realizes that he has no good answers for what he believes either. And Jesus absolutely meets that guy through the word saves him, changes his life, gives him this ministry. And, you know, I followed up, because this is a few years back. Is the guy still walking with Jesus? He is. And there was this fascinating interview. They said, well, do you, do you feel guilt or remorse about anything? He goes, no, but I don't have to. I don't feel it yet, but I know it's wrong because Jesus tells me and I trust in him, so I'm going to do what he says. God overturns things. He doesn't overturn everything in this life but he overturns things way more than we expect him to. It's just another example for me that the minute I doubt, there are so many stories and it shouldn't surprise us because what does Jesus walk around the world doing? Speaking. And that word tears things apart and puts them back together. 
It is the wrecking ball. And so I would just encourage you, family, when you're seeking the Lord and his word, you might not know it's working. You don't need to know it's working to know that it's working. It's working. He, he will complete the work he's begun in you. He is making you a new person. Here, here's how I'll end. Um, and I want to return. I said this passage is for those who are yet to believe, so I want to talk to you who are yet to believe. Um, I, I'll just tell you from my own experience, the offer is not too good to be true. It is real. But, but here's the sobering thing that Scripture says about the offer. It's a limited time offer. Verse six, seek the Lord while he may be found. You don't have an indefinite amount of time to explore every option in the world and figure it all out. Jesus says, it's here, but this life is your chance. And so I love you, so I'm telling you that. I'm warning you about that. The grace that you have today, if you have the grace to come to Jesus, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't put it off. He loved you enough to die for you and give you a feast at the Father's table, and you can come in for forever and experience what your heart was made to experience but i would just say like at some point you've got to ask how much more am i going to delay and deliberate over this decision because you are not guaranteed another breath don't wait let's pray so father we thank you for this unbelievable offer but we know that jesus because you rose from the dead it is true lord i pray that anybody who's on the fence lord that they would respond today Today is the day of salvation, Lord. Help them not to wait. Help them to come. And Lord, to see that you have died for their sins and rose again. All you ask is that we would come and receive it. Lord, I pray they would. And I pray it in your name. Amen.